Morning. We're on to Daniel chapter seven today, and you're going to want to follow along closely. We always encourage you to follow along in your Bible, but I just have to tell you, uh, if you don't today, I can almost promise you you're going to get lost rather quickly. There's a fair chance I'm going to get lost today. (laughs) And so if you don't follow in the text, you are undoubtedly going uh, to. Now you're probably thinking, well, that's an interesting way to introduce a sermon, so let me explain. Chapter seven marks a transition in the book of Daniel. As we've seen, the first uh, six chapters uh, tell powerful stories of how four Jewish uh, men stand for God in the midst of a hostile and toxic culture. These stories are pretty straightforward and they're relatively easy to interpret and understand. That's not the case, however, with the last six chapters as they uh, contain four mind-boggling visions that Daniel receives, visions that foretell events uh, in the future, including uh, all the way up into the end times. In these visions, there are terrifying hybrid beasts, an animal horn with human eyes and a mouth, a goat and a ram that fight one another, angels engaging in spiritual warfare, And quite honestly, all around crazy stuff that can be very difficult to interpret and understand. This is why when we announced uh, this series, some of you questioned whether or not we were going to do the last six chapters, thinking we might just take the easy way out and stop at the end of chapter six. We're not going to do that, however. Uh, We're going to plow our way through chapter seven through 12, and and here's why. Just like the first uh, six chapters, the last six have a lot to say to us today. In fact, in these chapters, we're going to see the same themes emerging that we saw in the first half of the book. We're going to see that these chapters uh, teach us that God is sovereign and working to bring about his full and final victory, and that because this is the case, we as his people can thrive no matter what challenges we face. Now, let me say this. The last six chapters of Daniel are what is known as apocalyptic literature. In other words, they deal with the end times. Therefore, they're similar to what we see in Revelation. And in fact, much of the imagery that we see in chapters 7 through 12, we also see in Revelation. And so as we begin, I want to warn you about a big danger that we face when we study passages like this. And the danger is in missing the forest for the trees. Missing the forest for the trees. You see, when we study the apocalyptic parts of the Bible, we have to be careful not to get caught up in the details in trying to figure out the how and when instead of focusing on the main point. And while I will never profess to be an expert in eschatology, that's a study of the end times, I will profess to know the main point of all of the apocalyptic passages in the Bible, and that point is this. Listen really closely. The point of all the apocalyptic passages in the Bible is that despite what it looks like on the ground, God's in control, and he's working to bring about his full and final victory. So there are many, many different interpretations of the details of the last six chapters of Daniel. And while there is some value in trying to figure out the details, we're going to focus on the main point. And we're going to focus on the main point because that will, by far, be the most valuable to us. Let me also say this. I want to be really clear about something. There is, um, there's room 
for a variety of different views about the how and the when of these end time events. In other words, at Harmony Bible Church, a premillennial view is welcome, a postmillennial view is welcome, a amillennial view is, is welcome. And if you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, then just go with the panmillennial view, all right? And the panmillennial view is, I just believe it's gonna work out in the end. <laughs> now, if you press me, that's probably the one that I would lean to as well, because as I've already told you, the main point regarding the end times of the Bible is this. It's the second coming. It's the second coming. You see, we can have differences of opinion about timelines, about how all of these things are gonna take place, but there, there's one thing that we have to hold to. The center when it comes to end times is the fact that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back, and when he does, he's gonna establish his kingdom and all of his followers are going to be enfolded in that kingdom with him where they will serve and worship him forever. That's what we're gonna to hold to while we will leave room to have disagreements and even debate about how and when and timelines and all things like that. All right then, buckle your seat belts now and uh, lean in with me. I'm gonna keep this as simple and straightforward as I can. And if you will um, just kind of Stick with me here. I believe that Daniel 7 is gonna be a huge blessing to you uh, today. So help me to help you by following closely. Verse one says this, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel's taking us back here uh, to the first year of Belshazzar, which is about 12 or 13 years um, before the events that we studied last week in uh, chapter six. And so Daniel says that during the first year of Belshazzar's reign, he was, remember, the last king of Babylon, or last Babylonian king. Daniel says, I had a dream. And he's gonna tell us this dream in what I'm gonna call four parts or scenes. And we find scene one beginning in verse two. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. So scene one um, is at the ocean. Now, when we think of the ocean, what do we think of? We think of the beach, right? Of sun and sand and good, good vibrations, right? It's the place that we would like to be right now. In fact, some of you are probably watching this message on the beach, and I just have to tell you, you're getting your reward here. We here in Iowa are gonna get a reward in heaven, amen? Okay? Now, in, in all honesty, it's about 40 degrees warmer this morning than it was last Sunday, which is why I'm seeing so many more of you uh, today. Maybe it also has to do with something that I said in last week's message, I don't know, all right? But regardless, it feels a little bit more like the beach up here today. Regardless, when Daniel sees the ocean in his dream, he's not thinking about the beach, and that's because in the Bible and in the ancient Near East, the ocean and the beasts in it represent chaos, evil, and rebellion against God. Therefore, when this dream began, Daniel would have immediately had a very gut-wrenching response. He would have been startled and frightened. 
I point this out in order to, to warn us not to begin to look at this dream in a technical way, trying to figure out all the details, but rather to respond the way that Daniel did, to respond emotionally, to, to respond recognizing that something is horribly wrong. And what's horribly wrong? We'll look at verse four. The first was like a lion. The first beast was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, the second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had 10 horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. The three important things I want to point out about these beasts that Daniel sees coming out of the ocean. One, they represent human kings. The beasts here represent human kings. Note Daniel's repeated use of the word like. The first beast is like a lion with eagle's wings. The second beast is like a bear. The third beast is like a leopard with the wings of a bird. So remember, Daniel is seeing a dream. So these, these are images they are pictures, they're really symbolic, and they are representing, get this, the beastly character of human kings and kingdoms. Now, if you question this, just cheat a little bit, look at verse 17, where we are told that these four beasts represent four kings that will come up out of the earth. So the beasts represent the beastly character of human kingdoms. Two, the focus is on the fourth beast. It gets the longest description by far, and note it's said to be much stronger and scarier than the other beasts. What's more, it's altogether different from the others in that it has 10 horns and then another little horn that displaces three of the others and has eyes like a man and a mouth that speaks great things. Now, we're gonna find out what all of these things represent and they picture here in a moment. But for now, I will tell you that this fourth beast doesn't just represent one king, but many of them. Third, the beasts aren't sovereign. The first is made to stand. The second is told to devour. The third is given dominion. And the fourth fights amongst itself. This is meant to show us right from the beginning that these beastly kings aren't in control. Someone else is. Someone puts them in place. Someone gives them dominion, gives them power. Now, we don't know who that someone else is yet, but we're about to find out in scene two. So look at verses nine and 10. As I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out 
from before him, a thousand thousand served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. Daniel's dream is kind of like a movie where one scene fades into another. So the first scene is at the ocean, and that fades into the second scene, which is in a courtroom. And the judge in the courtroom is called the Ancient of Days. Now, in our youth-obsessed culture, ancient is about the last thing you want to be, right? If someone calls you ancient, they are ridiculing you. However, in the Bible, age represents dignity and wisdom. So this figure is dignified and wise, but he's also pure as signified by his white clothes and hair. One thing that we should immediately recognize here is is the contrast between the beasts and the ancient of days. The beasts are ugly, vile, and evil. The ancient of days is stunning, holy, and good. What's more, Don't miss that the beasts bring chaos and destruction, whereas the Ancient of Days brings peace and order. Of course, that leaves us to ask, who is this Ancient of Days? Well, in addition to the description we're given of him, you you will note that the most pronounced thing here in verses 9 and 10 is the fact that there is fire. There's fire everywhere. The throne is made of fire. The throne has wheels that are made of fire, and there is fire coming out in front of it. Now, if we know our Old Testament, we know that normally, almost always, in fact, fire represents the presence of who? Fire represents the presence of God. And so, who is this Ancient of Days? The Ancient of Days is God. I want to point out here that verses 9 and 10 give us probably the the greatest picture of God anywhere in the Old Testament. And this picture is just absolutely glorious. It's undeniably awesome. And I have to tell you, it just gives me chills. Every time I read it, it gives me chills. And it should give you chills too. To see that we are getting just a little picture, a little glimpse of the incredible, really undescribable glory of our God. There's more that we need to see here though. Know that gathered around the throne are multitudes worshiping him. I want you to think about how encouraging this must have been uh, to Daniel. Daniel's gonna struggle with his dream, but there's also a lot of encouragement in it for him because, you know, at this point, Daniel has to believe that he is pretty much standing alone. Just, Just think about how difficult it was. He's been doing it for decades now, and during much of that time, he has literally had to stand on his own probably thinking that there's no one else standing with him, but now he's, he's getting a picture of the heavenly throne room and, and he's seeing that he's not standing alone because there are literally hundreds of millions worshiping God as well. So believers, if you ever get in a place, maybe you're in that place today where you think that you're all alone, you think that you're fighting the battle by yourself, just know that you have brothers and sisters and you have angels worshiping God in heaven as you are worshiping him here on earth. Now with that said, the most important thing we need to see here in verses nine and 10 is that God's about to render judgment. You see, not only is he dignified, wise, holy, and good, he's also just. He's a just God who punishes evil. We can see this in the fact that the books are opened which means that he's about to judge the beast. He's, he's literally about to throw the books at them. 
So that's the end of scene two. And recognize that as we come to the end of this scene, the tension is mounting. Something big is about to happen. If this were a TV show, right now it would say, to be continued. We'd have to come back next week for the, the next part of what's gonna happen. The great thing about today is we don't have to do that. You have to come back next week to see what's gonna happen. We're gonna see what's happening right now. Here's scene three, look at verse 11. I looked... Then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I actually find this somewhat anticlimactic. One moment, the, the horn is running its mouth, and the next, he's killed, and his body is destroyed and burned with fire. And while the other beasts are allowed to live for a while, their dominion is taken away. The clear implication of all of this is that this happens because of the judgment of the ancient of days. He's opened the books, he renders judgment, and the result is the beast is killed, and the other beasts, they're allowed to live for a little while, but their dominion, their power is taken away. Now, this actually looks like the end of the dream, but there's actually another scene and it's the most important scene of all. I kind of find this dream like the, the last movie in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, right? Uh, the Return of the King, you remember that, that movie? There are like 14 different conclusions. Every time you think you've come to the end, there's something else they're gonna show you. That's kind of what Daniel's dream is like. But let's look now at this really final and most important scene in verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Note the contrast between the first four beasts and this one like a son of man. The beasts are given kingdoms for a time and are then removed and destroyed. But the one like a son of man is given an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that will never end, a kingdom in which all peoples, nations, and languages will serve him forever. Now, of course, the big question here is, who is this one like a son of man? Well, in the Old Testament, a son of man is simply another way of speaking of a human being. So we are a son of man. All of us are a son of man. So this figure is one like us. However, note that he's also a cloud rider. He comes riding in on the clouds. And this is a clear indication that he's also God. To quote scholar J.A. Emerton, the act of coming with clouds suggests the theophany of Yahweh himself. If Daniel 7.13 does not refer to a divine being, then it is the only exception out of about 70 passages in the Old Testament, i.e. every time you see someone riding on the clouds in the Old Testament, who is it? It's God. Which means that this one like a son of man is also God. So do you know who this one like a son of man is? Let me point out to you that Daniel actually has no idea 
It's one of the reasons that he has a really difficult time with this dream. If you go to the end of the chapter, chapter 28, he says that he's anxious, he's alarmed, and his color has changed. Some of you look like your color has changed after what we've just read. But your color doesn't need to change because we should have a really good idea of who this one like a son of man is. And we should have a really good idea because son of man was Jesus' favorite title for himself. Repeatedly in the gospels, when, when Jesus introduces himself, when he tells people who he is, he says, I am the son of man. Here's the greatest example, Mark 14, 62. Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin. And the high priest says, tell us, are you the Christ? Here's how Jesus responds. I am, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power, and get this, and coming with the clouds of heaven. When Jesus is asked who he is, he says, I am the son of man that Daniel saw in that dream. I am the son of man who is gonna be presented before the ancient of days and given a kingdom that will never end. Now maybe you're, you're here watching today and you're saying, okay, well, that's great. Jesus claimed that that's who he was. How do we know that he actually was the son of man? Well, the very next day after Jesus makes this statement, they would crucify him. They would crucify him because he claimed to be the Christ. He claimed to be the son of man. So they crucified him and they put him in a grave. But you know what? He didn't stay in the grave because three days after they put him, out of the grave, put him in the grave, he came out of the grave. And 40 days after he came out of the grave, he ascended back to heaven. And as he was ascending back to heaven in the clouds, an angel appeared to his disciples and said, you know, this Jesus that you just saw go up in the clouds, he's coming back in the clouds one day to prove that he is the son of man, to receive the kingdom that his father is going to give him, to receive it forever. So that's Daniel's dream. And before we continue, I think it'll be helpful to review and summarize it, all right? So here's the summary. Numerous beastly kings are going to rule and wreak havoc for a time. But one day God's going to put an end to them all by appointing his son Jesus king. And from that day on, Jesus will rule and reign forever. One more time. Numerous beastly kings will rule and wreak havoc for a time. But one day God's going to put an end to them all by appointing his son Jesus king. And from that time on, Jesus will rule and reign forever. Let's continue in the text because as you can guess, Daniel has some questions about the dream. You probably have some questions about the dream uh, as well. And so after telling us that the dream made him anxious and alarmed in verse 15, in verse 16, Daniel approaches uh, one of those gathered around God's throne and asks for an interpretation of the dream. And look what He's told in verse 17, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Now listen, friends, if we understand what Daniel is being told here, it should be incredibly encouraging to us today. Because Daniel is being told that not only will Jesus receive a kingdom that will ever end, but 
Jesus's followers will also receive a kingdom that will never end. They will be enfolded into that kingdom with Jesus as well. The saints there, who are the saints of the Most High? The saints of the Most High are believers. They're Christians, they're followers of Jesus. They are children of God. So if you are a child of God, the saints include you, which means that when Jesus gets his kingdom, you're gonna get the kingdom too. Oh, come on, friends. (laughs) You act like you're at your funeral here. We're not at a funeral. We're talking about the greatest thing ever. When Jesus gets the kingdom, we're going to get the kingdom as well. Amen. Thank you. And note the emphasis on the word forever in verse 18. We're going to get it forever, forever, and ever. What point do you think we should get from that? We should get the fact that we're going to get the kingdom for how long? Forever. Forever. Once Jesus receives his kingdom, his followers are going to receive it too and they're going to receive it forever. Now that said, after Daniel's told this, he still has some questions, specifically about the fourth beast. And so in verses 19 through 27, he presses for more information and in doing so, he reveals that he left some things out in his earlier retelling of the dream. We might think of these as deleted scenes, but as we're gonna see, they're pretty important scenes. After recounting what he has already told us about the fourth beast in verses 19 through 20, in verse 21, he tells us this. As I looked, this horn, that's that last horn, made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. That's a pretty important detail, right? What Daniel left out is the fact that before we receive the kingdom, this last beast is going to be allowed to make war on us, to make war on the saints, to make war on the church. And he actually, for a time, will be victorious. He will defeat us until the Ancient of Days comes and destroys him and gives the saints the kingdom. Now, I know this is getting a little hairy, but stick with me because in verses 23 through 27, we get some more details. Look at it. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the 10 horns, out of this kingdom, 10 kings shall arise and another shall rise after them He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey him. So again, much of this is what we've already talked about, but there are some key additions in verse 25. Here we're told that this last beastly king will do four things. He will blaspheme God, He will greatly persecute God's people. He will seek to alter the worship of God and he will attempt to institute a new morality. 
The focus in all of this is the oppression of God's people. While all of the beastly kings will oppose the saints, this final king will carry out a savage, hate-filled persecution in an attempt to eradicate them. However, while God will give his people into this king's hand for a time, it will be a limited time after which the king will be destroyed and God will give his people the kingdom forever. That's Daniel's dream. We made it through Daniel chapter seven. But that leaves us to ask, what are we supposed to take from this dream? What is Daniel seven telling us? Well, there are three closely related things. Number one, powerful rulers will persecute God's people. Powerful rulers will persecute God's people. Daniel 7 is telling us that this is a given, and get this, it isn't just going to happen at the end. The last king here is undoubtedly what the New Testament calls the Antichrist. But the New Testament is also clear that before the big A Antichrist comes, there will be many lowercase a antichrist. In fact, in his first letter, the apostle John tells us that the spirit of the antichrist was already in the world in his day. This means that powerful rulers influenced by Satan will always be persecuting God's people. Now, depending upon where God's people live and depending upon when they live, the persecution they face will be greater or lesser. For example, right now, Christians in places like China and India and North Korea and Iran are experiencing great persecution, while here in the U.S. we are experiencing little, if any, of it. The truth is, however, at every time in history, in some place in the world, God's people have been persecuted by powerful rulers, and that will be the case until the end. So regardless of whether we are experiencing persecution right now, the Bible is very clear that we should expect it and that we should prepare for it. So I want you to hear me today, church. We should be expecting persecution and we should prepare for it. And we should prepare for it because if you wait until it comes, you're not gonna handle it very well. Do you realize that, that one of my jobs, one of the jobs of the church is, is, is to get us ready for the persecution that the, the Bible tells us is coming? I think it's very apropos here to refer to what the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You know, one of the questions that we have to ask is if we're not being persecuted, could that possibly be because we're not actually following Jesus the way that we should be? Paul says that all who want to live a godly life, and by the way, we should want to live a godly life, right? Can we affirm that? That's why you're here today, right? You say, I want to live a godly life. I want to grow in godliness. That's the purpose of gathering in worship. Well, if that's the case and if that's what we're striving for, we're going to face persecution and 
if we take what Paul's saying here and what the New Testament says really repeatedly, it's going to get worse, maybe even a lot worse, before it gets better. However, number two, Daniel 7 is also telling us that God will one day put an end to the persecution of his people. I want you to listen because we, we really need to remember this. The Antichrists are going to have their day. The Bible tells us the Antichrists are going to have their day. And by the way, this is their day. This is their day. But the Bible also tells us that their day is going to come to an end. And when their day comes to an end, it's going to be our day. And our day is never going to end. So I, I love this passage in 2 Thessalonians 2, where Paul tells us this. He says, and then the lawless one, that's the big A antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So listen, friends, spiritual warfare is not like Star Wars, all right? Where, where the different sides of the force have, have equal power and there's a continual struggle and a continued question of, of whether or not the dark side is gonna prevail. There is no chance that Satan is gonna prevail. Absolutely none. Because all Jesus has to do is show up and take a breath and he's done forever. Do you see that? He's gonna put an end to him simply by breathing. So one day, King Jesus is gonna come riding on the clouds and when he does, he's going to once for all put an end to the Antichrist and their persecution of God's people forever. What's even better is that when this happened, God's people will, and here's number three, experience and enjoy his kingdom forever. Let me put it this way. History ends with God's people experiencing and enjoying his kingdom forever. So we really, as believers, need to understand where history is headed, where all of this is going. Daniel 7 is so, so helpful for us because it shows us the trajectory of history. It shows us where, where everything is going to end. And where everything is going to end is in Jesus establishing his kingdom and those who are his being enfolded and experiencing and, and best of all, enjoying that kingdom forever. Now, I can't explain all the details in, in Daniel 7. I won't be able to do it in Daniel 8, 9, 10, 11, or 12 either, all right? But that's okay because there's one thing that's absolutely crystal clear and that's the fact that at the end of history, all of God's people will be gathered into his kingdom where they will serve and enjoy him and his creation perfectly forever. Can you see what's repeated over and over here in chapter seven? Where does it all come back to? It comes back to this eternal kingdom where the son of man reigns with his saints, with his people. Now, let me just make sure you understand what this means, okay? This means that the end for those of us who, who trust in Jesus is being returned to the garden state, being returned back to the place where everything is perfect, being returned back to the place where we have a perfect relationship with God, 
a perfect relationship with creation, a perfect relationship with one another, a perfect relationship with ourselves. It's the place where there is no sin, there is no pain, there is no difficulty, there is no tears, there is no conflict, and there is nothing that can ever ruin that again. That's where history ends. And so here's, here's the challenge for us, all right? Here's, here's the final challenge. As children of God, our challenge is to live with the end in mind, with the end constantly in mind. We must daily remember that while in the here and the now, we very well may experience pain and persecution, even a great deal of it, there's no need to panic. Can I tell you, I see a, a whole lot of panic in the lives of Christians these days, and there need not be. We don't need to fret over the pandemic. We don't need to fret over our new president. We don't need to fret over our economy. We don't need to fret over disease, over sickness. We don't need to fret over anything. Why? Because after this world has done its very worst, God is going to welcome us into his very best. And we will experience his very best forever. Let me quote Ian Duguid here. He says this, if God is our judge and Jesus is our savior, which is the big question, right? If that is the case, then the world can do its worst because after the world has done its worst, God will welcome us into his very best. So my charge to you today, brothers and sisters, is that we must keep this continually and constantly in mind. We have to continually be looking to the end and we have to help one another content to continually look to the end because as we do this, it will allow us to thrive individually and as a church no matter what circumstances we face in life. Let me put it this way, to refer to Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, we are all on our way to the celestial city. That, that's where we're headed, right? And that's not only where we're headed, that's where we want to be. Heaven is our home. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says, and from there, we await a savior. So the way that we navigate through the difficulties and through the challenges of this life is not by looking at the challenges and the circumstances, it's by looking at the city and the savior that's gonna come from that city to take us to be in that city with him forever. And the reason why the church, I'm just gonna go back to last week a little bit, the reason why the church is so important is because this is a community project. We're not meant to go on this journey on our own. And the reason we're not meant to go on this journey alone is because there's a lot of pitfalls on the journey, right? There's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of difficulties. There are a lot of things that are saying, hey, why don't you take this path and go this way? This way is wide. This way is wide. Hey, this looks great. We need people in our lives who will say, I know that that looks good and I know that that looks hard, but the hard way is the better way because the hard way is the way that leads home. We're, we're on the hard way. It's hard. It's difficult. We are experiencing that. It's okay, friends. It's okay. Because the end of this road is heaven, is our savior. 
And so let's help one another get there by continually looking to the end and looking to the promises of God. Will you bow your heads with me?